Welcome to Kibbe on Liberty. Today we have um, one of the most interesting economists that I have ever had the pleasure of, of knowing and learning from and reading, uh, Vernon Smith. Hi, Professor. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Um, and just so that for people that don't know, you won the 2002 prize, uh, Nobel Prize in Economics for Experimental Economics. Could you give people who don't know what that is just a, a brief summary of, of what that was all about? Well, we uh, study human actions in the laboratory. And I started out in the context of markets and uh, supply and demand theory. And so my first experiment in January 1956, first day of class, uh, I made half of them buyers and half of them sellers. And the buyers, I gave values. Uh, each person only knew their own value. For example, $10. You get $10. And you make money by buying below $10 from some seller in the room. So if you buy for five, you just made a $5 profit. And then sellers have costs and they make profit by selling above their cost. Well, this information is all private and decentralized. And no one that studied graduate economics in those days would have believed that that market would converge to the predicted competitive equilibrium. It did, and rather quickly across repetitions. So you just have, you know, undergraduates haven't studied economics yet. It's the first day of class coming in, and they don't have any trouble at all pick up, picking up on an oral outcry auction, two-sided auction. They pick up on that easy, and, but, but they hadn't been in one before. And uh, they're motivated to make money. And turns out, as each person is trying to do best for himself, the group does best for the whole market. Well, guess what? Who said that? Read Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations, Chapter 7. That's what he says. So, uh, um, long, long out. He, he died in 17, Adam Smith died in 1790. So here I am in, in uh, 1956 doing an experiment that proves, that proves that he was dead right. So that's what launched experimental economics. Not right away because no one else believed it except me. And so I had, uh, had a hard time convincing others. Uh, and, I, and I, of course, I did many experiments, continued, and flaws that I thought were in the experiment turned out to be not true, that this was what I was doing was discovering a law of nature. And uh, so the problem was to convince skeptical economists and they said things like, well, what do undergraduates know? 
I said, well, they don't need to know very much to, 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 to create an equilibrium. That's how easy it is. Yeah. So, you know, you had this litany of objections and uh, that you had to answer. And, and then, but other people got interested in these experiments and started doing to themselves. They, they repeated them. And of course, Oh, these experiments have now been repeated, oh, I don't know, tens of thousands of times because people use them in teaching all over the world in China and India and places like that, as well as in the United States. Uh, and kind of a, all kinds of people use them to introduce people to principles of economics. So there's been a huge amount of work with you. So you, I mean, you just described the, the, really the the basis of of proving adam smith right and maybe rehabilitating some of the caricatures of adam smith created by by neoclassical economics that reduces everything to some sort of robot pursuing utility maximization in a rarefied world where they know everything and that that's not really what economics is and it certainly isn't what adam smith said it was and i want to get into that and you you and uh, bart smith bart Bart Wilson have a new book, Humanomics, Moral Sentiments, and the Wealth of Nations for the 21st Century. I say new just because we've all been locked down for so long. This came out in 2019. And I want to get into that because I think there's there's a lot of uh, lessons in there that 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 specifically apply to, to some of the, uh, the, the crisis in economic science and, and maybe even some of the uh, uh, social disruptions we're going through right now. But I want to ask you first, um, we were just talking before we went live about you're in, you're in Arizona and it's about 110 degrees there right now. Is that correct? Yes, it's going to be a cool day actually today. It's only going to be in the low 90s. How are, how are you and your wife Candace uh, uh, getting through this extended lockdown? Because it seems like Every time I've ever seen you, you've been at an event or you've been giving a lecture. You've been all over the world all of the time. You guys are travelers and you're very busy and, and you've, you've been stuck like the rest of us during this extended lockdown. Is, how is that? Uh, I'm having a, a time of my life. I, uh, every day is like Sunday, which means I get up early in the morning and I write most of the day. And, uh, and so I'm I'm writing a new book on uh, classical versus neoclassical economics. And my, my co-author is Sabiu Inoua. He's from uh, the former French colony of Niger in Africa. And, uh, and he wrote me about well, a little less than two years ago, and said, you know, in your experiments, what you did was rediscover classical economics. <laughs> well, I, I wouldn't have put it that way, thank you, but that's what he said. And uh, so I read what, and he said, here's, a, you might be interested in this, in this manuscript I have. So I read it. And he was right, because the classical economists, they, they didn't use a concept of 
individuals having utility functions, rather that they, they were very realistic and, and operational, let me put it that way. They saw buyers going to market and they had a willingness to pay for goods. And that willingness to pay would get revealed. Uh, I mean, may, maybe not completely because you want to buy cheap, okay? But uh, Adam Smith knew about auctions, the English auction, and he knew that when, uh, as as the buy as the price is bid up for, say, an antique uh, book or something, uh, uh, buyers drop out of the market. In other words. That their bid reaches their maximum willingness to pay. And so that was his data. You see, he thought of, of, of buyers going to market to find the price. They didn't know the price yet, they don't, but they had a, a willingness to pay. Sellers had a willingness to accept. They found prices in markets. It wasn't a homework exercise where you maximize utility subject to a income constraint. Okay, that was a neoclassical. I think of that as a homework exercise. And you derive demand, then you go to market with that demand. No, that's not what that's not what Adam Smith is talking about. The aggregation of demand and the discovery of price happens in the market. And that's very, very uh, important conceptually, you see, the to, to, to way we think about these. And uh, Jevons and Valras, these other neoclass early neoclassical writers, uh, they saw prices as given, and then what's, and then you compute optimal quantities. The classical economists had just, that just reversed what the classical economists did. Their view was it's trivial what their quantities are. You're going to market to buy a pound of bacon or a pound of butter or a jar of olives. Goods come in are discrete. Most look look in your shopping desk uh, basket next time. It's filled up with one thing, one of each of several things. <laughs> so. So these guys are very realistic, you see. They, they, they ask, what do we observe out there? Well, we observe people buy these discrete quantities of goods in consumer markets. They have this willingness to pay and they go to market to find the prices. And they were interested in, the, in that price discovery process, see? And, and so they were really on, on track. And we, di we didn't... Of course, I, without realizing, I was rediscovering how they thought about things in the laboratory. Yeah. And, and this guy in, uh, in, in remote Africa writes to me and tells me, you see, because he's up on classical economics and he's up and he's read about the experiments and he makes that connection. So he's now at Chapman University and we're writing a book together and it's a lot of fun. You know, it, it, that sounds like a an ongoing extension, you know, the, my notes about your last book, Humanomics, or is, is that you're trying to rehabilitate Adam Smith, the father of economics, and, and somewhere along the way, neoclassical economics separated the 
human from Homo economicus. And, you know, one became this caricature by which all free market economic ideas were, were judged. And it took all the, the human part. And you're by, by you focusing on Adam Smith's first book, you got to read Moral Sentiments before you read The Wealth of Nations if you want to understand words like justice and words like sentiment. I mean, you are in your in your first classroom experiment. You're basically um, rediscovering classical economics. So I, I I get where your colleague is coming from on that. Oh yes, and uh, we are in that book seeing Adam Smith's first book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, as really part of the. Uh, classical liberty tradition uh, because it's interesting in a way he had to write the theory of moral sentiments before he could write the wealth of nations and because in the theory of moral sentiments he's asking uh, the question where does property come from well in the wealth of nations he's taking that for granted you see and but you find out its origins uh, in uh, the theory of moral sentiments, and its origin is in the rules we follow in our social communities. It's it's the ancestors of you and me uh, who lived in small communities, family groupings, and learned that if you're going to get along with your neighbors, then when they do a favor for you, 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 you're, you, you learn to reward that favor. <laughs> you, you learn basically to reciprocate in your social world. Well, that's just trade. I'm sorry. Trade is just reciprocation. Okay. It's an extension of that. So the, the basic stuff is in the theory of moral and it's in the theory of moral sentiments. And, and also you learn to, if, if your neighbor does something you don't like, you resent it and you learn to respond in a, back in some way that signals to him that what he or she did was hurtful to you. And you often punish that. Well, that's sort of the origin of, of property. And of course, what's your most important property is your body. And so what's the greatest crime? It's murder. And what's next in line? Well, it's theft and robbery you know, to take that which belongs to others is next in line. Third in line is violation of contract, of promises. And, and, and so all of that comes out of uh, our communities long before there's a, a, a civil government. <laughs> You see, and when government comes along and things are more centralized, what do they what do they naturally do? Do they start over again? No, they just take the 
They take the existing practices in these communities and make and put them into the law. So we, a rule of law is simply an application of, of these ancient uh, traditions. The, um, the, the, the question you know, always comes up, and that's like I, I learned the, the evolution of the, the rule of law um, from Frederick Hayek uh, long before I read the theory of moral sentiments. And, and I think Hayek, uh, like yourself, is perhaps, is perhaps working from these, uh, these ideas that come from Smith and the other Scottish philosophers. Um, what, when, did it, when did it become separate to sort of uh, divide economics and, and moral feelings and, and sort of that, that sense of reciprocity and, and justice that, that's very much part of, of human action? Um, why, why was it split apart? Um, was it just an attempt to, to create a, a mathematical equation that could make it look more scientifically precise? Uh, you know, that's a pretty deep question, and I, I can't pretend to fully understand the uh, proper answer to it. But let me give you what uh, I have learned by exploring that question. Uh, you see, the topic of, of sentiments, uh, and basically it's, it's all about social psychology, uh, not psychology. I, I think Adam Smith would be surprised that psychology today is mostly individual psychology because, uh, as he saw it, uh, almost all of our learning and growing up comes from feedback from others. That's how we learn. From, we learn from others which of our actions they approve of and which of our actions they disapprove of. So we just learn almost without realizing it. See, here's another example of the invisible hand, uh, a metaphor for the notion that uh, a lot of, we, of what we come to know, we are unaware of the learning process, you see, that's behind that. And... <clears throat> And, and so we, we learn to follow these rules, and this is why. And if we didn't follow them, we wouldn't get along with our neighbors, you see. And the, the, when, the, when the young child uh, first starts to school uh, and first has what Smith calls playfellows, that's when the child learns that the playfellows are not as indulgent as our parents uh, of our actions. They're more tolerant. They sort of realize, well, the child doesn't understand yet. And so they sort of go easy on, on punishment and all that sort of thing. Well, the, the other children don't uh, quickly respond, you see. So we, we start to learn now from uh, our social world these things. And <clears throat> 
and, and, and I think that, that lesson you see is not, the child in the family is often, well, why? Why do I have to do this? Why do I, why do I have to follow these rules? Well, in, in, with his playmates, uh, <clears throat> he doesn't ask that question. He just simply uh, starts to start to conform. So in this sense, I think Adam Smith would, would, would see that it's all about social psychology. Uh, and what, what's interesting to me, uh, and, and I didn't, uh, I didn't at first fully understand this or fully appreciate it because Smith doesn't write it down in anywhere. He does talk about everyone being self-interested in the theory of moral sentiments. But after you, a while, you realize that uh, if everyone, if we don't have common knowledge of the self-interest, then we don't have any way of knowing or realizing what is hurtful and what is not hurtful, you see. Uh, now, the behavioral economists like to just take, uh, explain uh, a lot of the cooperation in games by simply putting not only your payoff in your utility function, but the payoff of the other person in your utility function. Well, now if, if you take that approach and someone punishes you for being hurtful, how do you know that the person isn't, doesn't want to give money to the other person, you see? How, how, do you, how do you interpret the actions and games? Well, Smith would say, we're all strictly self-interested, okay? That way, when I do something that benefits you, I know it benefits you because we have common knowledge of the proposition that more is better and, and, and less is worse, you see. So, so with common knowledge of that, now we can start to learn rules, you see, where people are all on the same page. Action A is hurtful. Action B is a benefit. And why? Well, because less is worse, more is better. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that there won't be some errors here. I'm not arguing that that's perfect. But the point is that that common knowledge uh, is, is what really drives these rules, you see, and, and, and make them uh, make us sort of instantly be able to uh, know that your neighbor will appreciate it if you put out his or her garbage uh, barrel on the day she, on a day that she forgot it okay <laughs> you, you, you know that she will like that <laughs> uh, <clears throat> And so these are the kind of favors that we, and, and then she, she thanks me and, and, and brings me a box of, of oranges or whatever. So 
this is the sort of thing that goes on all the time. And it's in communities where everyone, Smith says, is strictly self-interested. Okay. And so there isn't any difference then between the prop, the, the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations in terms of it all being driven by the notion that we're all self-interested. But just because we're self-interested, that doesn't mean we can't be caring about others. And in fact, we can't be caring in a sensible way unless we can assume they're self-interested. It, it may, in fact, be the opposite, that, that this whole process that you describe in your classroom and the process of, uh, of the evolution of behavior and, and learned behavior and its institutions that Adam Smith talks about is probably requires caring and empathy and a certain sense of, of understanding that, that other people matter, otherwise the system doesn't work. And that's, that's why I find your, your, your work so interesting because the, the caricature in, you know, not, not just in politics today, but the critique of, of people that believe in individual freedom and responsibility, the caricature is, well, you just want, you just want people to do whatever they want and, and you don't care that people get hurt in that process. Well, it's, it's the opposite, I think. Well, yes. Uh, people sort of do what they, in a sense, they do what they want, but they take into account the wants and and uh, situation of others. And and they learn to do that in, in ways that don't really, that, that are just... Uh, very much automatic so that we don't have to contemplate and think a lot about it. We just, uh, and, and in a way that spontaneity you see is itself an important part of, of what it means to be, to be social. So uh, the thing is the theory of moral sentiments is a really deep treatment of human sociability its origins, its uh, function, and how that sociability serves us. So Adam Smith writes, with, publishes the theory of moral sentiments in 1759. And then he's already actually done earlier work on in lectures that are going to produce the wealth of nations. And so then he begins writing it, and that was published in uh, 1776. And and those are his two, of course, major books. Uh, He had an earlier manuscript written before either of these that's incredibly interesting, though, it's the history of astronomy, is the name of it. Uh, it wasn't published until after his death in 1790, and the executors of his estate uh, were James Hutton, who was a 
was doing work in geology at that time, which made him famous uh, by the 19th century. And also the other executor was Joseph Black, who was a physical chemist and did some of the early experiments uh, showing that air was a mixture of gases, one of which was oxygen, although he didn't identify oxygen. That wasn't done until later. So, and I make that point because uh, this community was incredibly uh, interesting and they, they were innovators. Uh, the, the, the Scottish intellectuals in this time were innovators in in uh, in the sciences as well as the as well as the social sciences. Well, his executors, uh, uh, he, for one thing, he was very concerned about all of his papers and all of his work that was un was unfinished. He wanted it to be destroyed. Uh, he asked his two executors in the last week before he died that they burn all of those papers. But he made an exception for the history of astronomy. And so that's why it got published. Uh, now, I think Adam Smith mistakenly believed that his work would not be misinterpreted if he was very careful that it would to have it polished before published. <laughs> well, well, I'm sorry that that's not quite the way it works. All right, so it's, it's unfortunate. He was very he was fastidious, you see, and worked and reworked manuscripts before they were published. That's the reason why those two books. Uh, you know, centuries later are still going to be read by people because they are really deep and, and rich uh, and, and have, uh, you know, have are loaded up with, with important uh, findings and messages uh, for us today. Uh, so unfortunately, uh, we don't have all of his other uh, papers because he had done a lot of work on a, on a major work on the history of jurisprudence, which he wasn't able to finish. So he just uh, did, did away with every scrap that he had, had uh, produced in that direction. Uh, so anyway, we have the history of astronomy and that's terribly interesting because it's, it, it begins with sentiment, you know. He talks about the heavens, uh, the beauty of the heavens, and asks why we should care, you see. So he, he begins with kind of the sense of awe and wonder that's intrinsic to human beings. And he saw that as accounting, you see, for our curiosity and what motivates us to uh, 
to examine anything and everything. So that, that theme, you see, was early, uh, appeared early. And of course, he was very much influenced by Newton. Everyone in the, in the 18th century was influenced by Newton. He, uh, Newton died when Adam Smith was four years old. So Newton overlapped, uh, didn't die until the 18th century. And of course, he was in a way the architect of the whole idea that there are invisible forces that account for what we observe. And, and you know, and, and it was astonishing, you see, that he could account for all sorts of observable phenomena uh, governing uh, the motion of masses on the basis of a postulated invisible attraction between the masses, proportional to their product, inversely proportional to the square of the distance. You see, a simple formula like that, <laughs> which, which, which actually didn't in detail account even for the for the motion of the moon, because the moon is affected by the sun as well as the earth, and he only solved for the case n equal to <laughs> two masses, and <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> but the point is it was approximately correct because the sun was far enough away that it, it, people could believe. You see that this was uh, an, an important. Uh, Law, law of nature. Well, I do. I do believe that that much influenced the thinking of people like like David Hume and Adam Smith in the 18th century in thinking about it. So you look around you and you find there's a lot, all kinds of order everywhere. Order in the economy, order in neighborhoods, and in social life. What what accounts for that order? So what what are the invisible forces? you see, at work in our communities that make us uh, sociable. And what are the invisible horses uh, and forces, forces in the economy that account for the order in, in the economy? Prices are orderly. They emerge out of higgling and bargaining. Uh, and, and, and they do work in the huge work in the economy. Smith had has this brilliant theorem which argues that because of these prices, we learn to specialize. And in that specialization, we're able to create wealth. You see, wealth comes out of, is a result of these Prices that connect us with others. And based on those prices, we make decisions, decentralized decisions. You see, I, each person in, in charge of his own kind of decision-making and, and world. And so I decide to study economics. Uh, 
my father decided to uh, to apprentice and be a machinist and and work for Boeing and, and Wichita and, and other uh, companies. So we all make the make these 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 decisions and uh, and and we're connected together now by this vast system of cooperation through prices. And it was the genius of Adam Smith to kind of first see that and to, and to see the essential elements driving it. Somewhere you described, um, and, and I think you were talking about that first manuscript on astronomy, you're describing uh, Adam Smith's definition of, of science as half imagination and create creativity and half experimentation um, where you can uh, you can imagine why something is happening the way it is, but you you don't know that it is that way until you continue to test the proposition and experiment and, and move forward. So like another way to say experimentation, I suppose, is, is humility, um, knowing how much you don't know about what it is you're observing. It just it just you see a pattern and you start to tease it out. And and I think uh, today the word science has been completely bastardized because when we say science today, um, there's this phrase that, that really bothers me, is that the science is settled. And to me, the very definition of science is the recognition that the science is never settled and that you're you're pursuing understanding in a way that, that maybe violates the, what scientists believed was true in the first place, but you're, you're trying to figure out the way the world works. Is that, did I, did I butcher your, your yes. definition? No, I, I think you're, you're right. The, the, you see the, your thought process, the system you have in your mind for thinking about the world needs to be disciplined by observations in which you ask whether those observations are consistent with that, with that system. And, and both David Hume and Adam Smith, and I'm sure other writers in that period, although I'm less familiar with them, but those two both, both used the word experiment. And uh, obviously they didn't have in mind a laboratory experiment like I did, but what, did, what were they thinking of? They were thinking of test cases. See, an experiment involves a uh, uh, thinking about the world and thinking about what observations in it provide a test of your system of thinking you see. So that's what they meant by an experiment. An experiment is a case. And so that's one of the reasons in you find Smith in both the theory of moral sentiments and the wealth of nations. Uh, he'll introduce a topic, have a few principles, and then he starts to discuss what people do, what countries do, communities do. Uh, he, he may bring in uh, uh, Greek or Roman plays, you see, because that's, uh, theater involves recording 
you see is a, is a cultural footprint, you see, of what's going on in the community and the world at the time. So all of that is evidence. Yes, it was part of his evidence, you see. And uh, his, his colleague, of course, Joseph Blackman, was starting to do laboratory experiments in, in the physical sciences. But that was, that was fairly, uh, fairly new in the 18th century. Uh, but all of these things were, but close observation or experiments that are deliberately designed to test something were, all, were starting to come in. You see, when uh, James Hutton, uh, James Hutton became a, uh, one of the first geologists, well, he was uh, curious about the erosion patterns in the cliffs you see along uh, along along the sea in uh, in Scotland, and he could see there were different strata and layers there, and he's and he's trying to think about what would have caused that, and he came to realize that. As he put it, the earth is kind of a living thing in the sense that it's constantly changing as a result of these environmental uh, forces. So he saw in the earth, you see something that was, was, <clears throat> was, was alive in the sense that it was not, what we saw today is not what we, you would have seen thousands of years ago. And so he's starting to introduce the notion of change in the study of, of the earth, and that led to the earth uh, sciences. So it's a, it's a really, it's an incredibly fascinating uh, period. Uh, now, I just realized we, we've I've gotten a little sidetracked, <laughs> wandered here a little bit, but I didn't really answer yet your question about why the theory of moral sentiment sort of fell into disuse and, and became, uh, uh, it was uh, that book and the topic of sentiments was very important in, in the 18th century. Well, one of the, one explanation of that is that you had the, in the 19th century, you had a movement uh, that became identified with, with opposition to traditional religious explanations of things, okay? You started to have the, the skepticism that began with Hume uh, in the 18th century was becoming more prominent in, in the 19th century, especially by the 1830s and 40s. And the topic of sentiments was really identified with religion, you see. And although Adam Smith had a, a, a much more comprehensive view of it, he was nevertheless a, a there's plenty of evidence to indicate that Adam Smith was a, 
was uh, was Christian. We often associate him with deism, and certainly, I I think that has some validity. But much of the theory of moral sentiments, he sounds like a a, a much more traditional Christian uh, theist. Okay, and uh, but but I think to Adam Smith, you see, uh, just because there may be an, an intelligence in the universe that we can think of. Uh, as God as a source of knowledge and intelligence in the universe. Nevertheless, there's the question, how do humans discover this stuff, you see? So what does it mean for humans on the ground, you see? And, uh, <clears throat> and so he doesn't have any difficulty believing in some abstract concept of a Godhead form of knowledge in the universe and the question of, of human knowledge and how we acquire it. Uh, so he didn't, he didn't see any, I, I, I don't think he ever really uh, saw this sort of conflict going on. He disagreed with his good friend, David Hume, and <clears throat> felt that, and even was not happy that 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 work got published because he thought it would it would reflect unfavorably on David Hume's tremendous uh, accomplishments in philosophy. People would judge him too much on that basis. There, there definitely has been a trend, and, and maybe Hayek would call it uh, scientism, but it this idea that that we can perfectly understand how the world works so that we could redesign it from the top down. Um, that appears to be, and you know, modern progressivism took that idea and you, you, you definitely hear it coming out of the, the mouths of, of politicians today. Um, and it, which is why I think revisiting the theory of moral sentiments is so important because, because Adam Smith shows us in a scientific way how it is that that your first uh, semester students could spontaneously work things out and get to a get to a goal that they didn't necessarily they weren't necessarily trained to get to, and I, I worry about that in the context. And I'll I want to ask you about some some current events right now, applying everything we've been talking about to to the um, current government response to COVID nineteen. And and what uh, what policymakers might do to to make things worse or better, and you know it strikes me that now an infamous Imperial College model um, took what I would call a very scientific approach. They 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 it was an epidemiological I can't say that epidemiological model. That's a hard word. Um, that was really just econometrics that assumed that that people wouldn't change their behavior. And came up with these these massive numbers of people that would die from this. Well, it turns out that it hasn't been true, um, but the consequences of those policies are are very significant. And I, I worry about it perhaps more than you did. You wrote that the, the piece in April in the Wall Street Journal uh, 
basically telling us to chill out about the economic lockdowns because people adapt and people have an ability to, to figure stuff out. And, and ultimately, if, if policymakers unlock the economy, everything's going to be okay. Do you, do you still, are you still buying that, um, that, that things are going to be okay? Obviously, in the long run, everything's going to be okay. I think I was, what I had in mind specifically was how much damage to the economy would be carried over from the pandemic. As long as the pandemic is is there, it's bound to, to negatively impact the economy because people cannot even in the absence of lockdown, <laughs> there's still restrictions on movement. There's social distancing. There's ma- distancing. There's mask wearing. There's all of this stuff, which which increases the transactions cost of doing anything and everything. And so that's bound to interfere with the economy. But once that's behind us, I see the economy returning. Uh, really quite rapidly to its previous pattern of growth. And and I think I, and, and one piece I wrote, I pointed out, I said that, you know, the, the Great Recession was primarily because, uh, was precipitated by the, the housing crisis, you know, and a huge drop in, in, uh, uh, in, in new home uh, building and the drop in prices, which uh, which created a balance sheet crunch on households with a lot of them in negative equity. And I said, I for example, I did not see that a repeat of that, at least coming out of the of the pandemic. I said, if anything. People are stuck in their homes and they're seeing, if anything, they're finding how valuable their home is. So I didn't see that as in any sense uh, reducing the demand for uh, construction demand for for homes. Uh, So that's really the the main thing that I wanted to caution against, any notion that we're in trouble once we got out of the pandemic, that there would be trouble continuing in the economy, because I, I basically I saw a a V recovery, or maybe the right hand leg being having a, a a gentler slope than the left hand leg. Okay, because the left hand leg came down fast, but we but we would we would come back, but but. But I had in mind that's past because, and and you see, you're going to have interesting how the pandemic has accelerated the adoption of technologies which were already available, but people were not really rushing to use them that much. And and one of course is Zoom. This 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 technology we are now using. Look how quickly that has been. That, that already existed, but its its adoption now has been accelerated as a result of the 
of the pandemic. And there, and there are going to be many examples of that sort of thing. Uh, and e even though traditional uh, oh, home retail home service uh, uh, activities, food, uh, the, uh, you know, right away we found inventories of paper and paper products missing. <laughs> so, so there were disruptions like that, but those inventories actually built, rebuilt fairly uh, quickly. And those are all just temporary, uh, temporary, uh, influences in the economy and we adapt and we actually even with the pandemic we adapt I think quite well to those because we are all so well practiced in uh, in markets even when in the market to get into a market we have to wait outdoors until someone leaves in order to get in because of the so so we have this uh, you know, substantial increase in transactions cost that slowed things down. But I see that as all, uh, once we're past the pandemic, that's, uh, we're gonna have a, uh, I think, uh, a return to very much to, to normal economic conditions. So I have a, I have a finally, final story to tell you. Um, you, are, you are responsible for something that maybe you don't want credit for, but, uh, in 2011, you were giving a talk um, at our friend Alberto Mangardi's Mises seminar in Italy, and I was I was there speaking on a different subject. But but you gave a lecture about Adam Smith and the theory of moral sentiments, and and I was sitting there in Italy. I might have been drinking a glass of wine while you were talking, and and I came up with a simple way to translate all 700 plus pages of sentiments into a tweet don't hurt people and don't take their stuff and that um that slogan has become quite popular with with young libertarians trying to explain the the values that sort of animate animate our movement and it's all your fault it's all your fault <laughs> well that's pretty neat i wouldn't have been uh thought it could be reduced so simply to a tweet. Good for you. You make a good president and your tweets will be better than the one we got now. Yeah, I don't think he's, I don't think our current president's ever tweeted that, but uh, that might be that a might step, be a step yeah. word. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Uh, this, this has been uh, a, a really, really fun thing for me to do. And I appreciate you taking the time. And we both exploited Zoom and the fact that you were stuck at home to, to have this conversation. And I just want to thank you. Well, thank you, and it's fun for me to do this, And but I do need to get back and finish a chapter that I'm going to send to my co-author. <laughs> I look forward to reading the new book. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for watching Kibbe on Liberty. By now, you know this is the most important event of your week, so make sure you subscribe on YouTube. Click the little bell so you get notifications. Kibbe on Liberty, mostly honest conversations with mostly interesting people.